The following presentation is from Mountain Park Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Mountain Park, along with additional audio and video teachings, visit mountainpark.org. So I read uh, recently about this guy who was released from prison who wanted to get the attention of his former girlfriend, and she wasn't paying much attention to him. So he talked a friend of his into shooting him in the arm. And his foolproof plan was, if I get shot, then, you know, this lady will obviously have to give me attention. So his buddy shoots him, takes him to the hospital. Someone at the hospital gets suspicious. They call the police. The police come and arrest both of them, throw them into jail. And, of course, the former girlfriend never paid attention to him at all, never came and visited him. When I read this story, I was reminded of this concept that's called secondary gain. Secondary gain speaks to how you and I are motivated. Sometimes we're motivated by secondary gain. Essentially, a secondary gain, a motivation, is when you're willing to take a loss in one area in order to gain something in another area. You're willing to be restricted over here so that over here you gain something in kind of a roundabout secondary fashion. It can best be illustrated by the elementary age boy who decides that he is sick and cannot go to school. And whether or not he is really sick or not, that's really beside the point. The point is he could be motivated by secondary gains. In this case, for him, the secondary gain would be while he would have to stay home and stay in bed and not be outside and be with his friends, he might be motivated by the fact that now his mom will cook him his favorite meal. Or now his dad might give him attention. Or now his grandfather might stop by and read him a story. See how that works? He's motivated by secondary gain. In the healthcare industry, secondary gain is a huge deal because there are a lot of people who say they're sick, but they really don't want to get well because the reasons they are sick are vast and numerous, and we can't quite get to all of them because they're motivated by secondary gain. Now, I want you to just keep that thought in the corner of your mind for a second. We're going to come back to it in a minute. I've been reading lately uh, from the gospel stories. And uh, recently I read the story again about the feeding of the 5,000. So if you have your Bibles, you're welcome to turn to Matthew chapter 14. Now, you'll find the story of the feeding of the 5,000, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 in both, or excuse me, all four of the gospel uh, accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We're going to read from Matthew 14 today, but you'll find him in all the accounts, which is interesting because outside of the resurrection of Jesus, it is the only other miracle that is listed in all four books. So apparently the disciples were impressed with what happened on that day, and there's, there's a lot that um, they learned and that they wanted to share with us. So we're going to turn to uh, Matthew chapter 14. I'm not going to read the entire uh, chapter for you. The beginning of Matthew 14 starts with us learning about John the Baptist, who, of course, was a central figure in the New Testament story. John the Baptist had been beheaded by Herod, and obviously this was a a sad day because he was the cousin of Jesus, a close friend of Jesus, and all the disciples knew about him. He was an important figure. And so uh, this happens at the beginning of 14, but I'm going to skip down to verse 13 and read a few verses for you. When Jesus heard what had happened, this says uh, when he'd heard about John the Baptist, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them, and he healed the sick. 
As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place, and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. And Jesus replied, They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. And then he gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate, and they were all satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. And the number of those who ate uh, was about 5,000 men besides women and children. So if we counted the women and children, there's probably 10 or 15,000 people, which is a huge number, no matter if it's the turn of the first century or in 2012. It's a big lot of people who have gathered to hear Jesus. So immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side of the lake. So he fed them miraculously, and then the word says he immediately made them leave while he dismissed the crowd. And after he dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. During the fourth watch of the night, which is about three in the morning, Jesus went out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, take courage. It is I. Do not be afraid. Now, to kind of get where we want to go this morning, you're going to have to use your imagination. I want you just to enter into this very powerful and incredible story. Imagine that you were one of those Hebrew people who were following Jesus around out into the wilderness. This is not where they normally went. This is why we called it a wilderness. A remote place is what the NIV said, but they were willing to do that because there had been some rumors about Jesus. Some of them had already heard him teach and preach. Some of them had witnessed some of the miracles he had already begun to display in his ministry. And even though Jesus and the disciples were kind of trying to get away because they were mourning the loss of John the Baptist, the crowds began to follow him. Can you picture that? By the dozens, they're on the shore. Jesus and the disciples are out in the boat, maybe going down the lake. Dozens and hundreds thousands of people and Jesus sees them and he comes in and he begins to heal the sick and to preach and to teach and then the day grows late and the people surprise surprise are hungry you know what that's like hopefully none of you are experiencing it yet I'll give you a few more minutes here this morning but when the blood sugar level starts to dip you know and when you get hungry it really doesn't matter if it's Jesus the greatest preacher who's ever lived preaching it's time to eat and the people were hungry. And I know what that's like. I've got five in our family, and I know what it feels like when people start to get cranky and grumpy. It doesn't really matter what else is going on. We just need to eat. And so I don't know how this worked. We can read some of the other accounts and the other stories, but I don't know how it is. But out of all the 15,000 or so people that were there, apparently there was only one boy who brought some fish and some bread. You would have thought out of all the moms that were a part of the crowd that morning <laughs> that more than one little kid had brought food. Now, I don't know how Andrew got it from him exactly. Maybe he played tug of war with him. Maybe he distracted him while Nathaniel ran by as fast as he could and grabbed the food and took it back to Jesus. However it worked, they brought it to Jesus, a few loaves of bread and a few fishes. And Jesus miraculously multiplied it, told the disciples to instruct the people to sit in groups of 50. And they then passed the food out to all these people. Can you imagine what that would have been like? First of all, it would have been amazing 
because you as a Hebrew person would have heard about the Messiah your whole life. You would have grown up in a context where you heard your parents pray for it and long for it and cry out and read the prophecies of the coming one. And now you're thinking this guy might be the guy based on what we've seen him do already and the miracles already and this food. He just miraculously multiplied for us. That is amazing. You would have been excited about that. But secondly, you would have been excited because now you got to eat. This was really good food. This was dinner and a show. This was really exciting for these people. There, there must have been kind of a breeze of euphoria that was going throughout the crowd. Can't you imagine? This guy might be the Messiah, and he's going to feed us. Our days of being uh, subordinated to the Romans, they're over. And it was exciting. And the disciples, they're going up and down the aisles. They're passing out this food. And can't you imagine the people? They're high-fiving them. They're chest-bumping them. They're so excited about all this. There's just this kind of feeding frenzy, euphoria that's building, this big crowd. And I'm guessing that Jesus is kind of watching all this take place on the hillside. And I'm guessing he senses the excitement of all this and realizes This may not be the best time for all this to take place. And the word says in the middle of all this that he immediately made them go to the other side of the lake. Some translations say he commanded. Some translations say that he insisted. The point is he forced them. They did not want to go to the other side of the lake. And the question begs to be asked this morning is why didn't disciples want to go? Why did Jesus have to in fact, make them go. Well, depending on uh, what scholar you read or how you kind of look into this, there are a variety of answers as to maybe why they wouldn't have wanted to have gone to the other side of the lake. Some people say, well, it's just simple. It's just kind of a regional thing. When you look at the Sea of Galilee, depending on where the feeding of this 5, 10, 15,000 people, depending on where it was at, and surprisingly, we don't know exactly where it was at, But depending on where it was at, if they went to the other side of the lake, that would be a place they did not want to go. It could be a place on the other side of the lake where John the Baptist was just beheaded. They certainly wouldn't have wanted to have gone there. If it was at a different part around the Sea of Galilee, they might be heading into an area that um, a lot of good, put it this way, kind of young Hebrew people didn't hang out at because it wasn't exactly a real Orthodox Hebrew traditional place for them to hang out. It was kind of a bad place. They wouldn't have wanted to have gone there. So some people say they simply had to be made because they didn't want to go where Jesus was sending them. Other scholars say it's just a simple fact that it's the end of the day and now that the sun is setting and night was upon them, the reason that Jesus had to make them go was because they didn't want to sail at nighttime. And it's also possible because several of these guys were fishermen that they could read the skies and they knew that a storm was coming. So some people say it was because it was nighttime. They didn't want to sail then. But I think there's probably a third thing at play. I'm guessing, now you have to use your imagination here, but I'm guessing that in the euphoria of the moment, in the excitement of the moment, these disciples were basically turning into rock stars. Don't you think? 
They're going up and down the aisles. They're given food. The people are fired up. They're so excited. They have waited for this moment all their lives in one sense. They've waited to eat all day long in another sense. They're thrilled, and they're hugging the disciples, and they're making a big deal about the disciples. And I'm just guessing, based on what I know about Jesus and what I know about temptation and the way the human spirit works, I'm just guessing that Jesus saw this, and he saw how they were tempted to be rock stars and how he was tempted to absorb it as a rock star at that moment. And he said, enough, time out, come on down. Come on down, disciples. Can't you see that happening? And so they're coming down with their basketfuls of food, and they're disappointed because they were just fixing to get ready for a rock concert right there. You know, James is loading the drums in onto the boat. He's all dejected. And Philip was on, like, a fog machine and smoke machine, so he's loading that up. James was on keys, you know, Thomas loading the stuff, and Thomas said, I doubt they were going to like this stuff anyhow. <laughs> Thomas, he was doubting, doubting Thomas. So they're loading up all their gear, and the people are all on the shore, and they're, you know, the young Hebrew girls are screaming and crying, and uh, they're offering babies, you know, with Sharpies for them to sign on their heads and stuff. And they're all getting in the boat, and Peter is still determined because he loves this moment. This is the moment that he had heard about his whole life, and he's waiting for it. And he's pretty convinced now that Jesus was who he said he was, and he throws on his Les Paul on lead guitar, and he stands on the edge of the boat, and he says, Come on, Jesus, we don't want to leave. We all just want to be big rock stars living hilltop. Because we all just want to be big rock stars and living hilltop. Bosses driving bins. It's Peter singing it. It's not Nickelback. Crowd's going crazy. Might not have been real appropriate, but um, (laughs) something like that happened. I mean, they were fired up, and they were in the moment. And Jesus, can you imagine, he sees all this, Peter on the edge, they're all piled into the boat, and Jesus just kicks the boat out into the Sea of Galilee. The people are dejected. The disciples are on the boat, their heads cocked like little puppy, like, I don't get it, I don't understand, because you're making us leave. And this was an awesome moment. Because you know what? The truth is, faith in God can have secondary gains too. And I'm guessing in that moment that the disciples were being motivated by a secondary gain. That is, they got to hang out with Jesus. They got to be around the guy who performs miracles, the guy who's going to be the Messiah. And because of that, they got to turn into rock stars. I'm sure that was a part of it. And I've known people like that in this day and age. People we wouldn't normally think of that way, but pastors, seminary profs, and authors, and musicians, who really are motivated by the secondary gain of being connected with God. Because the truth is, if you can write a really good book about God, you can sell it and make a lot of money. Or you can grow a really big church, have a pretty good living, or you can write a great song, and it can be about God, and you could be connected and It's real easy for us to be motivated by secondary gains, too. Unless you think I'm pointing fingers at other people, the truth is I've I've been motivated by that garbage, too. It's the truth. Faith has secondary gains as well, and I think Jesus knew that, and he said, nope, 
It's time for you guys to leave. And he kicks them out into the Sea of Galilee. And as they're going, and the people are leaving, you can hear the thunder in the background. It's what we like to call foreshadowing. It's not in the scripture, but I'm, I'm just wondering if that was the case. And the disciples are looking around, and Jesus leaves and goes up on the hillside. And the people go home because the show's over. And they're out of food. Well, they might have had extra food because there was, you know, leftovers. So they got to take that home and eat for a couple of days. But they're in the wilderness, so they have to head home. And they leave Jesus, and they leave the disciples. And they go out into what we just read. In the middle of the night is a fierce storm. Now, I want to talk about storms for a few minutes this morning. In the Bible, there are different kinds of storms, but there are at least two types. There are at least two types that happen the most. The first type of storm is what we call sometimes the storm of correction. It's a correction storm. As the name implies, it's the kind of storm that God allows to come into our life to literally correct our course so that we go the other way. Can any of you think of a a classic Old Testament correction storm? Anybody? Out loud. Come on. Jonah, thank you. Very good. It's a classic Old Testament correction storm because Jonah heard from God, but he didn't go to Nineveh where God sent him. He went to Tarshish. Nineveh was kind of a podunk, out-of-the-way place that no one really liked. Tarshish was the cool, happening place in the Old Testament times. It was kind of the Vegas of the day where all the lights were and all the excitement was. It's a really cool place. And a lot of ministry needed to take place in Tarshish, no doubt about it. And and Jonah knew that. I'm sure in his own mind, he said, look, there's a lot of good stuff that can happen over here. He heard from God, but he went the wrong way. So God sent a literal storm, which wound up being a correction storm, and it got a hold of Jonah and turned him around. See, Jonah's problem wasn't that he didn't know what God wanted him to do. His problem was he didn't want to hear it. With Jonah, it wasn't as if God wasn't clear. God was very clear. Jonah just didn't want to see it. Are there any people like that here this morning? Don't raise your hand. or Well, you can raise your hand. Some of you already did. Yes, it's me. It's good honesty. Some of us just don't want to hear it. And we justify. And we make up stuff and we think, you know what, honestly, God, there's a lot of ministry that needs to happen over in Tarshish, not Nineveh, but that's not where God has sent us. Maybe some of you can relate to this. I, I'm in uh, my kind of mid-40s, and so I grew up with a lot of this technology that all of us experience now all the time. I remember when I was in high school, back in the day, uh, when the video equipment first came out, which, you know, cracks me up to think about it now, but I remember my buddy Joe, he bought a, uh, a video camera, with the recorder, because back then the whole recording apparatus wasn't in the camera, even though the camera was like a bazooka. You also had to carry around this heavy trunk full of equipment with all these cables wrapped around you. And uh, I remember we would, we'd make movies all the time, and we would chase each other around. We'd trip and fall with this thing, which is heavy, cumbersome. And we would record to this uh, video format called Beta, was the name of it. Some of you can remember that. And then I remember Beta gave way to VHS. VHS was state-of-the-art. And then VHS, do you remember, gave way to a thing for a little while called Laserdisc. 
which was this huge trash can lid of a disc that looked really cool, but it was very difficult to, to carry around. And then, of course, DVD was a huge step forward. Now we have Blu-ray. My, my family brought, bought me a, a Blu-ray player not long ago, and uh, well, the first thing I did was went out and purchased uh, Blu-ray, like the Planet Earth series. Are you familiar with those? All the guys are, most of the girls, maybe not as much, because if you're like my house, we have three boys, two women. The women uh, don't particularly care so much about what's on these planet Earth things. They have an appreciation for them, but there's something about guys. I mean, the boys, we'll sit there and we'll watch bugs eating like salamanders on Blu-ray and a crocodile chomping on pronghorns and stuff, and it's just something in the boys' DNA about it. And invariably, my wife will walk through right when it's happening and roll her eyes. And I mean, my wife's tough. She grew up on a farm, a pig farm. So, I mean, she knows, but she has no desire to watch, you know, like bugs living in bat dung and stuff like that. <laughs> I don't know why. The men, we like those kinds of things. So that's the first thing I did when we got the Blu-ray player. I went out and bought this Planet Earth. And uh, I popped it in, and I'm sitting on the couch watching this in this beautiful uh, Blu-ray, high definition. It looks great. You can relate to that, right? My son, uh, Shay, who's 15, he cracks me up. He called me a while back. He was over at a friend's house watching Blu-ray on a really nice screen. And he, he texted me, actually. He said, Dad, the screen looks so good. It's so nice. It just makes it feel like someone's massaging my eyeballs. And I, th- I knew exactly what he meant. When you sit down in front of that, sometimes it looks so cool. So I'm sitting down in front of this, a- anticipating watching uh, something happen with planet Earth on Blu-ray. And these images start popping up, and they're really vivid. They're, real, they're, they're so vivid that I found myself on the couch with my hands over my eyes trying to kind of peek through because it was kind of nauseating some of the stuff that was happening. And then I thought, how stupid is that? We invested in the Blu-ray player and in the TV and in the Planet Earth series. We might as well be filming on beta with old big clunky black and white televisions because I'm sitting here not wanting to see the vividness and the clarity of the picture. And truthfully, that's the way I've been with God sometimes. He's so vivid and so clear. The problem is not that he's been clear. The problem is I don't want to see it. I don't want to hear it. And I bet you there's some of you like that this morning. You're in the middle of a correction storm. And you're trying to figure it all out. Like, well, what does God want me to do? Well, you kind of already know it. Now, I'm not talking to everyone here, but I bet you there's some of us here. You already know it. It might be a small little thing. If it's a small little thing, that's what you got to do. And God will bring another small thing and another small thing, and pretty soon you'll be on the path that you're supposed to be on. But if you don't do the small thing, none of the rest of it matters. That's why God sends correction storms. And God sent one to Jonah in the Old Testament. Now, the interesting thing about Jonah was he physically got turned around. His course got corrected, and he started going the right way. But on the inside, he was still struggling. He struggles all throughout the story. In fact, when you read the book of Jonah, we're not sure he ever really internally got it right. He was on the outside going the right way. On the inside, he was going the wrong way. Can you relate to that? He was still struggling. Because here's why. Not listening to God has secondary gains too. When you decide not to pay attention to God, you're being motivated by secondary gains as well because if you don't listen to him, 
Well, guess what? Then you don't have to do what he says. Or to take it a step further, if you don't believe in God, there's a lot of people in our world say they don't believe in God. I'm convinced that many of them, if not all of them, depending on how you define this, don't believe in God because of the secondary gains. If you don't believe in God, well, then you don't have to worry about what he says. It's pretty simple. Then you are your own God. Dostoevsky said, if there is no God, anything's permissible. And that's how our world lives. So God sends this correction storm into Jonah's life, physically turns him around, corrects his course, but now he's still going, or he's going the right way, but he's going the wrong way on the inside. Now he's dealing with another kind of storm. It's the same kind of storm the disciples are dealing with, back to our disciple story, because there are storms of correction, but there are also storms of perfection in our life. Correction storms, perfection storms. Now, here's the difference. Correction storms come because we're running away from God. We're being disobedient. Perfection storms come precisely because we are obedient. Get the difference? Correction storms happen because we're disobedient. Perfection storms happen because we are obedient. And God sends us and asks us to obediently walk into the trial, into the problem, charge the mountain, go into the storm, and to suffer. In one of my least favorite passages of all of Scripture, the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus was made perfect through his sufferings. And I'm guessing if Jesus was made perfect through his sufferings, that you and that me need some sufferings ourselves. And so Jesus sent the disciples into the storm. It's the middle of the night, and they are scared to death. The storm is raging. The wind is blowing. The rain is coming down. It's dark. These guys are fishermen, too, so they know what it's like to be in a storm, and they're literally scared to death. And here's the hard thing about perfection storms. Here's what I'm guessing. See, it's one thing to just deal with the storm, but I'm guessing they were also dealing with the feelings of betrayal that they felt because of what Jesus did. Because Jesus wasn't in the boat with them. Jesus sent them into the storm. You understand what I'm saying? It's one thing to deal with a storm. It's another thing to think, good grief. The only reason I'm dealing with this storm, guys, is because you told me to go into it. Come on. I've been faithful to you. You know, I love you. I give money to church. I do all the things you've asked me to do, and now I'm in a storm? Are you kidding me? Maybe I'm the only one who's ever felt that. It's kind of... Are you kidding me? And these disciples were in the middle of the storm. They were struggling with the storm itself, but they were struggling with the fact that Jesus wasn't there with them, and they felt betrayed. And there is no pain like the pain of betrayal. There's nothing like it. And maybe you're in that place this morning. Maybe you're in a storm because of what you believe or because of uh, the fact that you're wrestling with forgiveness. Maybe you're in a storm this morning because you're doing the right thing with your money. Maybe you're in a storm because you've been faithful. It could be any number of things. It's going to happen. 
Hey, let me encourage you for a minute here. If you're in a storm, you need to be thankful. Because storms don't come to just anyone. The Bible tells us that storms come to those that God loves. There's another word that's synonymous with storms. It's called testing. The Bible specifically says God tests those he loves. If you're in the middle of a storm, God loves you. Isn't that awesome? If you're in the middle of it, it's because God loves you. You just need to turn to your neighbor right now and say, man, God must really love me. (laughs) You know it's true. See, we think we're going to get away from the storm. We think I'll come to Jesus because we're motivated by secondary gains being close to him. Now we'll be safe. Jesus is not safe. God is not safe. Safe is not a part of the deal. And so then we run away from stuff and we think I'll get to safety. Look, there is no safety in safety. There is only safety in the storm. There is no safety in running away. There is only safety in walking right through the middle of it. Now, if this was a church that said amen and preach it, I mean, that would have been a spot right there to have done it. There is no safety running away. There is only safety in the middle of it. See, there you go. That's pretty good. It's only in the middle of it. And God is always asking us, asking us to go in the middle of it. I don't know what his problem is. He's always doing that. That's the way he works. That's how he produces perfection in our life. He cares about our character. I mean, anybody can follow God if everything is nice all the time. That's not the way it works. And throughout all of history, people of God have been people who have walked through storms. That's what they do. That's our calling. I was reading recently about Abraham. You know, in Genesis, we find Abraham speaking to God. This is amazing. We gloss over this when we read this because now we have the benefit of the Bible and all these years of learning about it. We know that sometimes God speaks. When God spoke to Abraham, it had never been recorded anywhere that God is actually somebody who talked. This was revolutionary. The third thing that God said to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, the third thing he says to him, he says, Abraham, do not fear. I am your shield. I was talking about this with my family a couple of weeks ago, and I said, you know, it strikes me as kind of odd that God would tell Abraham not to fear. What does he need to fear? God is speaking to him audibly. There is no reason to fear anything if God is speaking to you audibly. But because God said that to Abraham, we get a clue about what we think God is going to expect of Abraham's life, and we get a clue about what God expects of our life, and namely that is, we have a shield. What do you use shields for? Well, you don't use shields to run away from the storm. You use shields to walk into a battle. That's the whole point. Otherwise, God would have said, Abraham, do not fear. I am your really fast pair of track shoes. You may now run away from all your problems. Go, get on, get out of here. We'd all be running all the time. God never says that. He says, I'm your shield. Great, what do I do now? Go into the battle. What are you thinking? That's why I gave you a shield. God is your shield, and he wants to perfect you. 
He wanted to perfect Abraham, and apparently he wanted to work his spirit of perfection into the disciples' life. And so they, in obedience, left. They did what God wanted them to do, and now they were out in the middle of a fierce storm, and it felt like God didn't care about them. But here's the best part of the story. I mean, you thought it was good so far, but it's getting to get better. We learn not from the Matthew account, but from the Mark account of the story that Jesus went out by himself. Of course, he was by himself. You know, the disciples were off. The people had left. They all went home because the food was gone and the show was over. Jesus is up in a solitary place. He's praying. And Mark says that as he's praying for his disciples, he saw them. Isn't that awesome? Now, the disciples, they couldn't tell that Jesus just saw them. But he did. I don't know how he did it. I don't know if he created like Google Earth really early or if he had a super high-powered pair of binoculars. It doesn't really matter. He's God. He can do whatever he wants. Jesus saw the disciples. They didn't know it. But see, we can see it from our helicopter view, right? We see Jesus on the hill, the disciples in the middle of the storm, at the base of the storm. You know what it's like at the base of the storm. The wind is whipping. You know, the rain is coming. It's hard. It's loud. You can't hear anything. You ever watch the, the, uh, the travel channel, the weather channel, and they show the big pictures of the storm from satellite image? And it's this beautiful, nice-looking white cloud kind of a, in a cylinder, kind of going in a circle motion. And it's really, when you look at it for what it is, it's a beautiful work of art. That's God's view. Down at the base where you and I are at, things are going crazy. All hell is broken loose. God's out here. It's just this beautiful picture. And Jesus is on the hill, and he sees the disciples, and he walks out on the water. And then, of course, it's the whole story that we don't have time to get into today where Peter sees him. First, they all scream, which is kind of funny in hindsight. And then Peter sees him and says, you know, God, if it's really you, let me walk on the water. He does, and that whole thing happens. But the point is that Jesus saved him. So here's what I'm trying to tell you. Jesus sent them, he saw them, and then he saved them. He sent them, he saw them, and he saved them. But I didn't come over here to tell you about the disciples. I came over here to tell you about your life. Because God is sending you. And he's going to see you. And if God sees you, he's going to save you. That's the way it works. God sins, and he sees, and he saves. That's the business that he is in. Isn't that good news? And if you don't feel it, because invariably from time to time, if you're like me, I don't feel like he's seeing me or saving me, that doesn't matter. What matters is what the Word of God says. The Word of God says that he thinks about me all the time. How precious are your thoughts, O God, of me, is what Psalm 139 says. If I could count them, they'd be, like, they'd be more than the grains of the sand on the seashore. He sees me, and he saves me. His Word says, I will save you. I am there for you. I am your Redeemer. I am your shield. That's the whole point. If God sends you, he'll see you, and he'll save you. And we can trust in that today. That's good news. Well, I'll close by telling you that uh, it was pretty late in the formation of this message that I, I kind of was startled to think about 
this whole idea of secondary gain because I, I, I was previously thinking of being motivated by, secondary, by a secondary gain as being an unhealthy way to live. But then I started thinking about our God. You know, one might say that our God is a God of the secondary gain because he took a loss in order to get to a gain. He identified with me in his death so that I could identify with him in his life. He gave it all up for me so that I could receive it all. He restricted himself so that I could have life. Philippians says that he sent his son who humbled himself, who did not consider God, excuse me, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, who humbled himself, took on flesh, even to the form of a servant, and went so far as to die for us. Why? So that at his name, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. Oh my goodness, we serve a God of the secondary game, which has now completely messed up my head, and I'm not sure what all that means. It was such a good message until I thought of that. <laughs> His ways are higher than our ways, right? He's a God that cares about us so much so that he sent his son. And he saw his son, and his son saves us, and we can be thankful for that today. Let's pray. Thank you, Father God, for the opportunity to uh, just open your word this morning, and there are about 500 different ways we could have gone with the rich, deep truth of your word. And I pray that you would bless what we talked about today, that you would help us to remember it. And if there was something illogical or something that didn't make sense that I said, that we'd forget it before we even walk out the door this morning and help us to live by the truth. And the truth is, whether we feel it or not, is that you send us, you see us, and you save us. And so it's in that with that powerful concept and in your powerful name, the name of Jesus, that we go out today, not with a spirit of timidity, but of power and of love and of self-discipline, thanking you in advance for how you lead us. Amen.